This morning we're going to look at Leviticus chapters 11 through 15. So let me invite you to turn to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11. We can't come to God as we are, can we? Our sin creates a barrier between us and God. And so that means that we have to come to God on His terms. He's a holy God. We are unholy. We are unclean. And so, so far we've seen that we can't come to the holy God apart from a proper sacrifice. And we've also seen that we can't come to the holy God apart from a proper mediator. And this morning we're going to see that we can't come to the holy God apart from ritual cleanliness. Ritual cleanliness. And so, in order for us to cover these five chapters, I want to answer three questions. First, what did God demand of Israel? What did God demand of Israel? So we're going to do a survey of these five chapters and just see what it was like to be a, a person who lived in Israel at that time under God's rule. Second, why did God command them or demand them to make these distinctions? God is going to set them apart as a very different people group as far as what they have to do and how they are to worship Him. So why did God do that? And then third, what can we learn from this? So first, what did God demand of Israel? Chapter 11. We're going to see that overall in all these chapters, God demands ritual cleanliness. First, we see cleanliness in eating in chapter 11. After an opening summary in the first couple of verses, we have their responsibility to understand the difference between clean and unclean animals. So look at verse 3, chapter 11, verse 3. Whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hoofs, and choose the cud among the animals that you may eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these among those which chew the cud or among those which divide the hoof. The camel... For though it chews the cud, uh, chews cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. And then verse eight: You shall not eat of their flesh nor touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. And so, if you were to read this whole section, you'd see all the the, the various illustrations. But a camel would chew the cud, but it didn't have a split hoof, so it would not count. They would not be able to eat a camel or a rabbit. Uh, they would not be able to eat a rabbit. A pig, although it had the split hoof, it didn't chew the cud. And of course, lions and tigers and other animals that have paws, uh, they don't even uh, meet either of the categories. And so th- there's all sorts of animals that are out of the question that become unclean to them. And they need to understand the difference. So these first, this first section here through verse 8 talks about the land animals. Now, in verses 9 through 12, he tells them what is clean and unclean with regard to the sea animals. Look at verse 9. These you may eat, whatever's in the water. All that have fins and scales, those in the water, in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that does not have fins and scales among all the teeming life of the water and among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things to you, and they shall be abhorrent, or they shall be hated by you. You may not eat their flesh, and their carcasses you shall detest. Whatever in the water does not have fins and scale 
is abhorrent to you. So for the land animals, they have to both chew the cud and have a split hoof. For the sea animals, they had to have what? Fins and scales. If it didn't have fins and scales, then you couldn't eat it. Verse 13, we move to the flying animals. And instead of giving a, a rule, God just lists out the types of animals that are unclean. So we're not going to read through all of them, but just to give you an idea, verse 13, These moreover you shall detest among the birds. They are abhorrent not to be eaten. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, and so on. goes through a whole list of birds that they cannot eat. So we have the land animals, the sea animals, the flying animals, and then in verses 20 through 23 we have insects. Look at verse 20. All the winged insects that walk on all fours are detestable to you, yet these you may eat among all the winged insects which walk on all fours, those which have above their feet jointed legs with which to jump on the earth. So locusts and grasshoppers, crickets, those types of animals would be acceptable. They would be clean. Everything else they could not eat when it came to insects. In verses 29-31 and verses 41-43, to 43, we have the unclean swarming animals. So any reptiles, uh, any rodents, those are all unclean. Look at verse 41. Every swarming thing that swarms on the earth is detestable, not to be eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly and whatever walks on all fours, whatever has many feet, in respect to every swarming thing that swarms on the earth, you shall not eat them, for they are detestable. Do not render yourselves detestable through any of the swarming things that swarm, and you shall not make yourselves unclean with them, so that you may become unclean. So, there are all the rules for all the various types of animals, the kinds that God would allow them to eat, and those which God would not allow them to eat. But there was more than just eating involved here, wasn't there? Remember he said, you shall detest their carcasses. You can't touch their dead bodies. If you do, you become unclean. And that's what verses 24-40 through 40 talk about, the spreading of uncleanness. That, that uncleanness spreads from the dead animal to the person. And if someone else touched that person, it, it, they became unclean as well. Notice verse 32. Also, anything on which one of them may fall, one of these dead animals, when they are dead, becomes unclean. So if it falls on a wooden article or clothing or skin or sack, any article of which use is made, it shall be put in the water and be unclean until evening, and then it becomes clean. So any object that a dead animal touched became unclean. Now, there was an exception uh, in some cases they had to actually break the vessels. So if you had a, a clay pot that was made and it took you hours and hours to make it or you spent a lot of money in order to buy it and a dead animal uh, touched that pot, that pot had to be broken. Now there was an exception with a cistern, which is where they would um, keep their water uh, or, or a well of some type. If an animal died in the well, that whole well wouldn't become unclean. Uh, and I think this was just God being merciful to the people because of the shortage of water and how difficult it would have been for them to have a water source. But the main thing that we see here is that Israel now has a way to be able to determine for themselves what is clean and what is unclean, what they can eat, what they cannot. So cleanliness in eating. 
In chapter 12, God turns their attention to cleanliness after giving birth. Notice verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male, male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, and as, as in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean. On the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for thirty-three days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. So when a woman would give birth to a boy, she would be unclean for seven days and then she would have to stay ceremonially, ceremonially neutral. That is, she was neither clean nor unclean. She would have to stay that way for 33 days. Now notice the difference when she has a girl. Verse 5, But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for not seven days, but two weeks or 14 days, as in her menstruation. And she shall remain in the blood of her purification for not 33 days, but 66 days. So God had specific instructions for the mother depending on what, what uh, gender of child she had. And then verses 6-8 through eight tell us how she was made clean after this was done. She had to bring a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon for a sin offering. God required a sacrifice in order for her to be cleansed because uncleanness cannot be accepted before God. Ritual uncleanness has to be cleansed. And the way that cleansing happens is either a waiting period, unclean until evening, or an actual sacrifice. In this case, it's a sacrifice. So cleanliness after uh, cleanliness in eating, chapter 11, cleanliness after giving birth, chapter 12, and then chapters 13 and 14 talk about cleanliness and infections. This helped the priests to be able to understand how they would treat an infectious skin disease. Notice who this directed at. Before it was, the Lord spoke to Moses, say to the sons of Israel, here it's the Lord spoke to Moses, look at chapter 13, verse 1, and Aaron saying, when a man has on the skin. So this is directed at the priests primarily. They need to know how to handle these skin diseases. And he continues in verse 2, when a man has on the skin of his body a swelling or a scab or a bright spot, and it becomes an infection of leprosy on the skin of his body, and he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his, his sons, the priests. The priest shall look at the mark on the skin of the body, and if the hair in the infection has turned white and the infection appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, then it is a, an infection of leprosy. When the priest has looked at him, he shall pronounce him unclean. So, these two chapters, chapters 13 and 14, talk about all the various infections that a person can get. Primarily this one. Now, in our translation, it comes out as leprosy. But uh, let me show you that this is probably something other than what we would think of leprosy today. Look at verse 47. Chapter 13, verse 47. When a garment has a mark of leprosy in it, whether it is a wool garment or a linen garment, whether in warp or woof or linen or of wool, whether in leather or in any other article made of leather, if the mark is greenish or reddish in the garment or in the leather or in the warp or in the woof, 
or in any article of leather, it is a leprous mark, and it shall be shown to the priest. Then the priest shall look at the mark and shall quarantine the article with the mark for seven days. He shall then look at the mark on the seventh day. If the mark is spread in the garment, whether in the warp or in the woof, or in the leather, whatever the purpose for which the leather is used, the mark is a leprous malignancy. It is unclean. Now, have you ever heard of leprosy spreading to clothing? Okay, so this is probably not referring to leprosy as we know it today. In fact, many scholars believe that that leprosy wasn't even around during that time. It was some other kind of infectious skin disease that actually caused some sort of spreading into clothes if it if it touched the person's clothes. And so that's why the priest would have to examine the clothes because they didn't want anything unclean to come into the tabernacle. Does that make sense? Why would that be important? Right? Because everything in the tabernacle has already been cleansed and set apart for God's purposes. And so neither a person nor his clothes that are unclean can come into the tabernacle. Now notice in chapter 14, in chapter 14, verse 34, And it continues with this idea of what the text calls leprosy. When you enter the land of Canaan, verse 34, which I give you for a possession, and I put a mark of leprosy on the house in the land of your possession, then the one who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, saying, something like a mark of leprosy has become visible to me in the house. And then the priest has to go through all of these rituals to try to figure out if this is a spreading disease or a spreading infection on the walls of the house. Have you ever heard of leprosy spreading to the walls of someone's house? Okay, so this is probably uh, what other translations call an infectious skin disease of some kind that can spread to clothing or to the walls of of the house. In order for a person to be cleansed from this disease, they had to have the infectious skin disease removed. They had to have a waiting period until they could show evidence that the the disease was gone. They could not come to the tabernacle. If they could show that the disease was gone to the priest, then they would come, chapter 14, verses 1 through 20, with, with a sacrifice. They would have to have atonement made for their cleansing. And um, so, notice the end of chapter 14, verse 54. We have this summary of these previous two chapters. This is the law for any mark of leprosy, even for a scale, and for the leprous garment or house, and for a swelling, and for a scab, and for a bright spot, to teach when they are unclean and when they are clean. This is the law of leprosy. Now, I'm going to just give you a little bit of a clue of why it's so important that these things are handled properly. God demanded a perfect, a spotless, a blameless sacrifice, right? In order for a person to have atonement made for their sins, this lamb could not be blind or lame, right? Could not be one of the leftovers. Instead, it had to be of the best quality. And the same thing is true with regard to a person. He had to come into God's presence spotlessly. There's no infectious skin diseases that could spread to other parts. God demands ritual cleanliness. In chapter 15, we have ritual cleanliness and bodily discharges. First, in verses 1 through 15, we have uncleanness caused by a chronic bodily discharge from a man. 
Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. The Lord also spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, and the word here is literally flesh, which is probably referring to, an, to the man's external male organ. Okay? So, when any man has a discharge from his flesh, his discharge is unclean. This moreover shall be his uncleanness in his discharge. Is the uncleanness whether his body allows its discharge to flow or whether his body obstructs its discharge. Every bed on which the person with the discharge lies becomes unclean, and so on. And so this is a, a chronic problem that he would have. And and what the priests what God was causing the priests to do was to keep this from spreading, this uncleanness from spreading to other people. Verse five. Anyone, moreover, who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Notice the cleansing that was necessary for this type of person. Verse 13. Now when the man with the discharge, the chronic discharge, becomes cleansed from his discharge, then he shall count off for himself seven days for his cleansing. He shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in running water and will become clean. Then on the eighth day he shall take for himself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord to the doorway of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall offer them, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf before the Lord because of his discharge. In order for the man to come back into a place of acceptance by God and a place of ritual cleanliness, he had to bring a sacrifice. Now, so that's a chronic problem that a man would have. Here's kind of a more normal uh, issue, verse 16. And that is a seminal discharge. Now, if a man has a seminal emission, he shall bathe all his body in water and be unclean until evening. So this isn't a chronic problem. This is just something that happens in the normal course of life. Verse 17, As for any garment or any leather on which there is a seminal emission, it shall be washed with water and be unclean until evening. So instead of a sacrifice being needed to be offered for the chronic problem, he is simply unclean until evening. Now look at verse 18, because now we have the uncleanness that results from a couple engaging in sexual intercourse. Verse 18, If a man lies with a woman so that there is a seminal omission, they shall both bathe in water and be unclean until evening. So we have the chronic problem for the man. We have the kind of the normal seminal omission discharge from the man, verses 16 and 17. We have sexual intercourse, verse 18. And then the uncleanness that happens from the normal course of a woman's life, and that is from her menstruation, verses 19 through 24. When a woman has a discharge, if her discharge in her body is blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything also on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whether it be on the bed or on the thing on which she is sitting, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. If a man actually lies with her so that her menstrual impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Now, 
if you think about it, in the course of life for, for a man, he's only unclean until evening when he has a seminal discharge. But for a woman, when she has her normal menstrual cycle, she's unclean for seven days. And so when we look at it that way, we think, well, maybe that's a little bit harsh on the part of God. I mean, one week every month she was unclean, unable to come and offer proper sacrifices. But as one uh, scholar notes, Gordon Wenham, there are three factors for ladies during that time that would have been different to the ladies in our day. Number one, he says, is the average age of marriage. What do you think the average age of marriage is in the United States today? 28, it's actually 27. Okay, so 27 is the average age of marriage. So you have this period of time from the time uh, a girl begins her menstrual cycle all the way until she gets married where she is going to be in their setting, she would be unclean. But in the ancient Near East, it was, it was closer to 13. When she actually reached that age, she would get married. So that would be different. The second thing is the length of time for nursing the ner- newborn. In our day, we uh, uh, ladies tend to nurse for about 12 months, those who do. But in the ancient Near East, it was probably more like two to three years. And so that would affect her menstrual cycle as well. And then the third factor, he notes, is the desire for larger families. So this uncleanness was not as frequent as we would think. Instead, it was actually quite rare for uh, a girl or a young woman in that day to... to to, um, to be unclean in this way. And so this law would have significantly affected only unmarried teenage daughters. Uh, all others would be uh, participating in the process of uh, procreation and, and would be nursing their children, and so their menstrual cycles would not be as frequent. So that gives you just a, a, a brief oversketch, uh, a overview, a sketch of what it looks like to live in Israel during that day. You have to be very careful and guarded about what you do and when you do it and what you touch and what needs to be destroyed, what needs to be burned up, and so on. God was concerned very much about their ritual cleanliness. You start to get a sense of how difficult it was to live in Israel under God's law with all these specific demands, but God was actually protecting them and setting them apart as a specific people. So the first thing we want to do is just look at what it looks like, uh, what God's laws were, what His demands were for their ritual cleanliness. Now we want to answer the question, why did God make these distinctions? Why did God make these distinctions? First, we need to understand the difference between unclean and sinful. Okay, because as I've been going through these descriptions, I hope what you're thinking is not that because a person has, say, a seminal mission or a menstrual cycle or even a sexual relationship, that those things are all sinful. Okay, we have to understand the difference between unclean and sinful. It's true that it would be sinful for Israel to eat unclean animals, but the animals themselves were not inherently unclean, right? They were not inherently sinful. Horses and dogs and salamanders are not an abomination to the Lord. They're part of His creation. They're simply designated by God as unclean for Israel's purposes. So they're not inherently sinful. 
What about giving birth? If uncleanness and sinfulness are identical, then it would be sinful for a person to give birth. And yet we have in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where God says, be fruitful in what? And multiply and fill the earth. Why would God give them a command that would actually cause them to sin? Right? Psalm 127.5 says that that uh, children are a gift from the Lord and happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. Right? So, so having a child is in no way sinful. It's simply for them it was unclean. What about an infectious skin disease? Was God judging these people with infectious skin diseases or, or some sort of mildew that spreads to the walls of their houses? Was this sinful because of some sin that they were a part of? Not necessarily. It's just a nature of life. Some people will have infectious skin diseases. And that makes them, for purposes of worship, unclean, not sinful. See? What about these bodily discharges? Or a woman having a period? What about sex? Is sex sinful? Well, if we look at the rest of Scripture, of course not. Within the marriage relationship, it is exalted as a gift from God and something that is honoring to God. Genesis chapter 2, Song of Solomon, 1 Corinthians 7, and many others. So we need to understand the difference between sinfulness and uncleanness. Let me try to show you that from the text. Turn back to chapter 4. Remember, we were dealing with all these burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, and these were a result of specific sins. Many of them unintentional, but specific sins. And they had to have a specific sacrifice for each of these. Chapter 4, verse 20 let me just show you how each of these made atonement for them, but it provided a different purpose than what these in chapter 11 through 15 will do. Chapter 4, verse 20, at the end of the verse, so the priest shall make atonement for them, that is, with the sacrifice, and notice, they will be what? Forgiven. Okay, so keep that word in mind. Look down to verse 26. Another sin offering here. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be what? Forgiven. Verse 31, same thing. At the end of the verse, the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven. Verse 35, same idea. Chapter 5, verse 10, the guilt offerings. The end of the verse says, So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin, which he has committed, and it will be forgiven. And we could look at a lot more as we go through chapters 5 and 6. So all the way through the first part, we're talking about specific sins. In order for that sin to be covered or done away with, God required an atonement sacrifice. But this atonement provided what for them? Actual forgiveness of sins. Now, look at chapter 12 and verse 7. I'm trying to see the distinction between sinfulness, chapters 1 through 7, and uncleanness, chapters 11 through 15. Look at the uh, uh, verse 7, chapter 12. He shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement. Okay, again, there needs to be atonement made for this childbirth. And, shall, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child. So, notice, this shall make atonement for her and doesn't say she shall be forgiven, but she shall be what? She shall be, she shall be cleansed. Same thing in verse 8 at the end of the verse. The priest shall make atonement for her and she will be not forgiven, 
There's nothing sinful about having a child. She simply was unclean ceremonially. For the purposes of of worshiping God, she was unclean. And in chapter 14, verses 18 through 19, this infectious skin disease, same idea. Priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be clean. Goes on in chapter 15 with these uh, bodily discharges for both male and female. The atonement that's made for them is not for forgiveness, it's for cleanliness, it's for ritual purity. So, something sinful, chapters 1 through 7, needs forgiveness. Something unclean needs cleansing. It's as simple as that. So, now with that distinction in view, uncleanness is not sinfulness. So, why did God make these distinctions? Why choose various animals and say these are clean, these are unclean? There's lots of options that are, are, are put out there. Some people say it's because of hygiene. You know, if you ate the swarming animals, for example, the rodents, well, you're just going gonna to catch all sorts of diseases because they eat trash, right? Maybe it's for that. Others believe that it was because clean animals were actually better for our diet. Okay? For Israel, God was just protecting them and making them more healthy, right? There's no such thing as beef bacon, as far as I know. Some of you guys are like, whoa, that's a good idea. We've got to figure out how to do that. Beef bacon. Uh, could be that God was making it difficult for them to interact with pagans, right? All these pagans are out there and they're eating other kinds of foods and they couldn't go out and touch those types of animals. They, couldn't, they, they didn't really deal with them. But I think the best explanation comes from a scholar by the name of Mary Douglas. And she argues that clean animals are those that are not carnivorous and those that have normal characteristics, as we would expect. So for land animals, they have normal characteristics and they're not carnivorous. For sea animals, remember which kind of sea animals were unclean? The ones that had no what? Fins or scales. So we wouldn't expect something without fins or scales to be in the water. So that wouldn't be a normal circumstance for that animal to be. In that case, it's unclean. Any animals that ate other animals, that took the life away from other animals, were unclean. That's why there's a whole list of birds that are primarily carrion birds, right? Birds that eat flesh. And God said you're not allowed to eat any of those. And so I think that gives the fullest description those two things. The animals could not be carnivorous and they would have normal characteristics for where they lived. Now that doesn't answer all of our questions. There are a few questions that may still be unanswered. But I think that gives the best overall explanation of what's going on with these food laws. And I think the basic thing that they would learn is that whatever God would accept for His offering, remember the kind of animals God would accept? Only clean animals, right? Those are the types of animals that they could eat. And so they would quickly learn the difference between what is clean and what is unclean. I think God was actually teaching them something very important about life. God made creation to operate in a certain way and He designed creation to live. And so those animals that took the life of other animals were actually unclean in some sense. They were shedding the blood of some other animal. And so I think the people of Israel would quickly learn as they're bringing offerings to God, as they're sitting down to eat, that 
that, um, that death was a real problem in the world. And that in order for them to have life, something else had to die, right? We don't think about this too much because most of our food comes packaged. But if you think about it, in order for you to live, something else has to die. For them, it was something clean had to die. And the same thing is true about their spiritual life. In order for them to live, they had to have something clean die for them and and be offered as a sacrifice. So I think that gives somewhat of an explanation of the the rules for eating. What about forgiving birth? I think the main thing that makes that brings about uncleanness in the childbirth is has nothing to do with the baby. Did you notice the baby was not unclean in any way? Rather, it was the loss of blood during the childbirth. God again was showing that remember, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so whenever there's a loss of blood, there's uncleanness. And and just naturally, when women have babies, there is a loss of blood. And it's as if a measure of life is leaving her body with the blood. And as a result, there had to be some sort of cleansing. As far as why there's a difference between you know, the length of time she was unclean for a boy and a girl, it wasn't because females are inferior to male. That's not stated or implied anywhere in the Scriptures. Rather, men and women are equal in God's sight as far as essence. But probably, the the female child, uh, it required a longer period of purification because she would be a future childbearer. She would eventually have her own menstrual cycle. As a result, the mother would be unclean for longer. What about infections? Remember, the infection person wasn't sinful. He wasn't a lesser lesser person than someone else. Rather, God was making it extremely clear that infection could not make its way into the tabernacle and the cleansed objects, the holy objects. When I say holy, I don't mean they're inherently special, but they're set apart for God's use. God didn't want those accoutrements, the furniture, to to be unclean in any way. Just as a lamb had to be brought and be spotless, so did a person have to be spotless when he came into the tabernacle. What about the the bodily discharges of man? Well, it's hard to know exactly because the text doesn't explicitly say, but if you think about it, semen is what God uses to bring life. And when it is discharged, it's as if the life-giving liquid is leaving his body. Same thing with sexual union. There's nothing sinful about sexual union between a husband and a wife. But what this would do is it would cause, they would be unclean until evening. It would cause them to abstain from sexual intercourse on the Sabbath day, wouldn't it? Because they wouldn't be able to come and worship, offer sacrifices at the temple if they had a sexual relationship in the morning, for example. None of these bodily emissions were sinful. They didn't require confession, right? They didn't have to come before the priest and say, I'm really sorry about what I did. I'm really sorry I had a baby. I'm really sorry I had a seminal mission. I'm really sorry I had, a, you know, I, I had my period. Instead, it was that the people would be unclean, quarantined until the time of purification was done. So what did this teach the people? 
All these things marked off a person as unclean and it taught them three important things. I think we ought to get, get to uh, learn something from this as well. It taught them three important things. Number one, God demands that He be approached in absolute perfection. That is, with proper cleanliness, proper sacrifice, and through a proper priest. An infectious person had blemishes all over his body and he would be unsuitable to come before God's presence. God would not allow it. God demands that he come, that he be approached with a spotless worshiper, bringing a spotless sacrifice, doing it through a spotless priest. Number two, it taught them that death is the enemy. When blood is flowing through our veins, that's a sign of what? It's a sign of life. But when blood is leaving our body, it's either a symbol or it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sign of life leaving our body. It's a sign of death. And what God was teaching them is that all these animals that are eating other animals, it symbolizes the death that there is in the world as a result of our sin. And death is the enemy. Death is unclean. It's not, it's not normal. It's not a part of how God created things to be. And number three, the laws of purification showed them that they were to keep out because they were unclean. A person who had an infectious skin disease, a person who had a chronic discharge, they could not come to worship God as they may have wanted to. Keep out. You're unclean. So, those give us some answers for why God would do this. Now, finally, what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this? Two two main things. Number one, God is holy. Look at chapter 11, verse 44. God is holy. Why, God, are you making up these rules or, or setting aside these rules for us? Here is a clue right in the text. Chapter 11, verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. Be set apart. Be clean. That's the idea. Because I am holy. I am set apart. I am clean. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Why did God demand their ritual cleanliness? Because God was ritually clean. God was holy Himself. Millard Erickson says God's perfection is the standard for our moral character. Because God is flawless, He desires and demands a similar quality in us. God is holy and He demands His people to be holy. Do you think He desires any less for us? Do you think He kind of just overlooks our unholiness and our putrid sin? that we often bring to the surface. For us, I hope you see that it doesn't come in the form of ritual cleanliness, that God is looking for us to go through all these ritual laws and start eating these types of food, only these types of food. God, Jesus tore down those barriers when He came, right? And it was clear to Peter that He was supposed to start eating unclean animals, according 
to, to Acts chapter 10. But for us, it means spiritual holiness is what God desires of us. That, that same phrase, be holy because I'm holy, is repeated in the New Testament several times, including 1 Peter. Those people in the Old Testament who would have been ostracized from society and from worshiping God would have been accepted in the New Testament by God. person with a hemorrhage or with an infectious skin disease can now come to God in our day apart from ritual cleanliness. Nobody inspects your skin when you come into church to see if you have any infectious skin diseases. You can actually come here... Uh, you know, use discretion. We don't. We don't all want it, but um, but you can actually worship God, even if you have something like that, right? So God is holy, and the second thing we can learn from this, and finally, is we have abundant grace through Jesus Christ. We have abundant grace through Jesus Christ. What did the Levitical law say? You know, keep out. You are unclean. Don't come and worship me when you're unclean. And you know what Jesus says? Come to Me, and I will make you clean. Remember the story of the leper who comes to Jesus and he cries out from a distance because no one's listening to him. Instead of Jesus just commanding him and saying, be clean. You know what He does to him? He touches him. Now what would have happened to a person who touched a leper in the Old Testament? A person who touched someone with an infectious skin disease. What would happen to that person? He would become unclean as well. That's why they had to have their own communities and walk around unclean, unclean. But when Jesus touches him, Jesus doesn't become ceremonially unclean. Instead, He makes the leper clean. The woman with the the hemorrhage, remember? For 33 years, had a hemorrhage. She's not allowed to touch anybody. She's not allowed to touch anything. She's not allowed to worship God properly as a Jew would worship. She's making her way through the crowd and probably secretly because if people knew who was touching her as she's going through the crowd, they would have been furious. Instead of calling out to Jesus and asking for His help, she just reaches and touches the edge of her, His robe. And Jesus says, Who touched me? Who touched me? And the disciples said, We're in a huge crowd, Christ. I mean, you ask who touched you? Lots of people touched you. And he said, no, someone touched me because power has been, uh, has been taken from me. In other words, I, power has been given to them from me. And finally, she probably sheepishly admits that she's the one who did it because she knows she's unclean. And Jesus heals her. And I assume He probably touches her showing her that she now is clean. She can now come to God and be cleansed. She no longer is ostracized from her her people. These laws were constant reminders for the people of Israel of their separation from defilement and God's demand for purity and cleanliness. Every time they would have a flow of discharge or eat a sandwich, eat any kind of meat, it would be an opportunity for to reflect on the fact that God had chosen them, that God had set them apart for the purpose of holiness. For us, we don't have all those things to remind us today. Instead, we have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit residing in us, don't we? 
And those, both the Spirit and the Word, are constant reminders that God has set us apart for the purpose of holiness. And finally, under this abundant grace through Jesus Christ, it magnifies the sacrifice that was paid. Death is the enemy. Blood flowing from the body is a sign of death. And the very fact that Christ was willing to shed His precious blood so that we could have life should be something that would be almost enough to make a Baptist shout. It should cause us to be stirred up within our hearts with love for Christ because He was completely clean. He was completely holy. Right? And yet blood had to be spilled from Him in order for us to have life. You see how much God desires to have a relationship with you? He gave what was His greatest possession, His Son, Jesus Christ, and poured out His blood for your sake so that you could have life. Should we not be willing to find out what He desires regarding our personal and corporate holiness so that we can come to Him on His terms? Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at Your mercy through Jesus Christ. We are amazed at Your holiness. And we come before You and get a sense of what Isaiah must have felt when he stood before the throne and felt so unclean, saying, I am unclean and I come from a people of unclean lips. And yet, Lord, You granted Him forgiveness and You grant us forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We're thankful that we no longer have to bring animal sacrifices, but now we have the perfect and final sacrifice of Your Son paid for our sin. Lord, in order for us to have life, in order for us to have a relationship with You, something holy had to die. And it only could be Jesus who could take our place. We're thankful for His sacrifice. And we pray that as a result, we would be willing to pursue holiness in our own personal lives and in, as our lives, in our lives as, as a church. Help us as we consider these things in Jesus' name. Amen.